Hello, my friend. Before we start this amazing episode, I want to invite you to the personal Patreon page of this podcast. If you love what's being done here and want to keep the podcast and the meditations free to the public, then you can come on over to our brand new community on Patreon and donate $11.11 a month and all proceeds will go towards keeping this free, keeping this going. Plus, we'll be building a community together and I'll give you bonus material. You can explore this option in the description of this podcast or just go to patreon.com slash Dr. Reese. Let's begin. Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. Could we live in a better society if we combined Jesus Christ and Gautama the Buddha? Welcome to episode number 91. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Brandon Nappy. He's a mindfulness instructor and the executive director of Copper Beach Institute. In this talk, we're going to go deep into Buddha and Christ and how Thich Nhat Hanh and Thomas Merton brought these two spiritual giants together to try to teach people a new way to perceive the world. We're also going to talk about the transformational power of mindfulness, how to deal with fear, how to deal with your inner critic, and plus lots of talk about the great Thich Nhat Hanh. So sit down. Relax and take in this beautiful recording. Dr. Nappy, hello, sir. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. So what would you say in your experience is the transformational power of mindfulness? Well, when I came to mindfulness uh, about 25 years ago, um, there were parts of my life that I was missing that I didn't even know were absent. Um, there were uh, deep areas of pain and trauma. There were parts of myself that I didn't even know. Um, there were depths of pain that I wasn't in touch with. And there were depths of joy and delight and pleasure that I was also um, cut off from. I had lived in a kind of gray, um, a gray area and had, had numbed myself from um, the heights of delight or the depths of despair. And when I started practicing mindfulness with this really brilliant, uh, wise and compassionate therapist who's a mindfulness teacher, I felt like my life had been given back to me, that there were pieces of myself that were being delivered to me, like gifts on Christmas morning, mm -hmm. insights, parts of my past that I had blocked out that were both um, really hard to look at, but also pieces of my life that, um, that were quite joyful and wonderful that I had been closed off to. So the transformative power of mindfulness is nothing less than getting your life uh, getting access to your life in its fullness. Yeah, there's something very special about the present moment, isn't there? Well, you know, it's a funny thing because in some ways there's something very special about it and it's nothing special at all. Right. It's, it's completely ordinary. And it's one of the first things that I had to let go of in my, my own mindfulness practice is I was, I recognize in retrospect, I was on a quest for the extraordinary, for the amazing, I was looking for something special. I was trying to be something special. Yes. Um, and it's really in my, uh, my Zen journey <laughs> that mm -hmm. reminded me that there's both nothing special and something completely extraordinary about the ordinary, uh, right? So the specialness is found um, and letting ordinary life unfold naturally as it is. We don't have to manufacture beauty or manufacture joy. Um, ordinary life is 
it's it's amazing, right? It's, it's joyful and wonderful and in yeah. its own way, and even at the, in, in its stresses and strains and, uh, yeah. and challenges, there is a kind of beauty there too, right? So, um, yeah, absolutely, it's a paradox. If if we can accept that life is this beautiful mystery, then you know life life, life can change. Well, that word mystery is so important to me, Kevin. Thank you for using it. I was just um, having this great conversation with, uh, with someone who was saying, um, I just don't know why. Uh, and then, you know, she was uh, listing a whole series of situations in her life. She said, I just don't know why. I just don't know why. If I just knew, if I just understood. And then she looked at me. She just stopped. She must have seen something in my eye or she, she could read my mind. And she said, Maybe I don't have to explain everything. Maybe I don't have to have a theory. Um, maybe I can just show up moment by moment and that would be enough. And she said, do you think that's right? <laughs> I said, well, do you think that's right? She said, yeah. I said, yeah, I think you're onto something. I mean, that's everything. To be able to sit with mystery, to be able to sit with not knowing. Yes. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm. I mean, we have an idea, but it, it can change quick. Oh, you're right. You, you, said, you said one of my favorite words. You said Zen. What a just straightforward tradition, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, In your journey, have you found anything as just straightforward, simple? It's like simple yet so disciplined I, I like to refer to it as like the navy seals of spirituality <laughs> so um you know zen is a beautiful rich um dedicated disciplined tradition um and of course there are all sorts of um schools of zen that embody the the spirit of zen simplicity um in a different way so you have various lineages for example of um japanese zen very disciplined, very strict. Uh, and then you have um, uh, Vietnamese de, uh, Zen embodied through Thich Nhat Hanh. It's very gentle. Uh, my friend who's a part of Thich Nhat Hanh's community called it um, the party barge to enlightenment. <laughs> right? So it's the, it's the, the, the lineage of, jet, of Zen that really celebrates joy and playfulness and almost a, a child-like wonder. And... Uh, of course, you know, each tradition um, has its own unique way of casting light in the world, and each tradition has its own signature shadow, like us, right? And I say this as a person who's been practicing Zen for 20 years. Um, you know, the, the unique, brilliant light of Zen, of course, is its simplicity, its directness, uh, it, it cuts right through <laughs> all the craft and gets right to the essence of things. Um, it's shadow side that I've learned from some of my Zen teachers and some of my fellow uh, Dharma brothers and sisters on the journey is that um, it's harshness or discipline or hardness can often um, be a hiding place. You know, you can sit on the cushion for hours and hours uh, and nothing can happen because you're just rehearsing and rehashing the same old stuff. Um, and, and of course, uh, the Zen tradition is well aware of this tendency in Zen. And so various uh, teachers have come along to make sure that, uh, that we don't dwell too much in our own signature darkness. But I like to think that this is just how life is. All of us cast light. All of us cast a unique shadow. There's no avoiding that. Uh, like everything else, the task is just to be aware and as awake as possible. You mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh. He was a part of my journey as well. What does he mean to you and how is he a part of your, your journey? You know, I kind of see him as my, um, my root teacher, my guiding mm -hmm. teacher. I've had many teachers in several Zen traditions. Also in the Christian tradition, I very much um, identify both uh, as a Christian and a Zen practitioner. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on this kind of interreligious dialogue and this kind of exchange that happened between Zen monks and, uh, and Catholic monks uh, in the last century. Um, but Thich Nhat Hanh holds a very, very special place in my heart because he 
Um, he was among the first in the last century to, to write about his love of Jesus, mm -hmm. even as a Buddhist practitioner. So that really caught my heart and my eye yeah. early on in my childhood. And of course, he has such a simple way of writing. His, um, uh, his book, Peace is Every Step, Mm. was my very first introduction to Zen. And I can, every time I wash the dishes, I think of his invitation to wash the dishes with mindfulness. Yeah. And um, it changed my life because I thought um, through a kind of misunderstanding of the Christian tradition that the spiritual life was really about escaping the world. It was about salvation that was on the other side of eternity. And um, what I came to understand in, in Zen practice, and especially as Thich Nhat Hanh articulated this, is that I could experience um, the salvation that Jesus, Jesus promised moment by moment in my mindfulness practice, that I didn't have to wait. Yeah. The kind of love and wisdom and insight and connection and growth and healing was actually available moment by moment. So um, in this way, Thich Nhat Hanh, this beautiful Zen Buddhist teacher helped me to grow in my connection to Jesus. Um, and that, that has animated, you know, my whole journey since, uh, gosh, since my teenage days when I, when I found him. One of my favorite books is Living Buddha, Living Christ. Yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. In fact, uh, you might have noticed that in June, I'm teaching a course using his book uh, on, on Thomas Merton and yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh in dialogue. Yeah. So uh, yeah. it sounds like our journeys have, uh, have some, many things in common already. Yeah. So Thomas Merton, for those that don't know, was a, he was a Trappist monk. That's right. Thomas Merton is, um, is one of the great um, spiritual writers in the English language, uh, in the Christian tradition, widely read by people outside the Christian tradition as well, uh, of the 20th century, who, after a really um, kind of tumultuous early life, um, consciously began his, um, his spiritual path in college. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he spent most of his childhood in England, um, and then he moved to, uh, to New York, to uh, Long Island, went to college in Columbia, and, um, and had a pretty powerful conversion experience, and um, in a very dramatic way, um, entered one of the most strict and silent monastic communities in the country, in, in Kentucky. And his autobiography, Seven Story Mountain, made Thomas Merton a best-selling author, which was unheard of for Catholic monks and, uh, at that time um, in the 40s. And, um, and then he became kind of a household name, at least in Catholic circles, and became a kind of ambassador uh, for the, the Christian contemplative tradition, certainly, and at the end of his life, discovered um, Zen practice. Uh, mm -hmm. Though he was a student of Hinduism, he was a student of Sufi Islam and a, a, a great student of Judaism as well. So interreligious dialogue was really, really important to him. And, and he sort of opened up the door for seekers, for contemplatives, especially those within the Christian tradition, also drink from all of these other beautiful wells that exist yeah. in so many other traditions as well. So he was a great hero of mine. I found Merton when I was just a teenager, mm. and he's been a companion on my journey. Since just a few episodes ago, I had Carl McCullman on the podcast, who studied with the Trappist monks and Thomas Keaton. Oh, yeah. Carl is... Uh, I, I wouldn't say a good friend because that makes it seem like I have known him for many years, but Carl and I um, have a connection. Uh, we had a last minute cancellation at Copper Beach Institute for a retreat and he pinched in literally with two days notice and led a beautiful silent retreat on, on centering prayer, the wonderful kind of Christian meditative yeah. modality. He's a, he's a beautiful heart. Yeah, it was a, it was a good conversation. I, on this podcast, you know, it, I advocate the master-disciple relationship and the understanding of all religions. And obviously Jesus comes up a lot. Gautama the Buddha comes up a lot. These are two great figures that brought a lot to the world. And, you know, it sounds like your journey is a, is a combination of that. So 
what have you learned from Buddha and what have you learned from Jesus? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, we would need a hundred podcasts uh, for that <laughs> question. But, you know, if I were to distill this down to the to the essence um, and, you know, there's a, there's a great danger <laughs> in dist in trying to essentialize and distill things down. But but, you know, I'll I'll, uh, I'll take a chance and at least speak to how these two traditions have nourished my own life. Um, I know that. Um, oh, that the Buddhist teaching, especially as it's um, expressed in Zen, because of course there are many, many um, sects of Buddhism and, and, and Zen is the one uh, that I'm most uh, comfortable with and the one I've studied the most. Um, I, I think what's most interesting to me about Zen and how this has shown up in my life is the, um, is the wisdom around practice. You know, the, the, the Buddha story is, is so beautiful. Uh, you know, he tried all these different practices, right? He tried this life of extreme asceticism. He tried, he practiced the life of excess, right? He grew up with great privilege. Um, and then he sat under, under the tree. He right, committed to practicing until he figured out uh, the way in which reality worked. Mm. I think the great insight that I, that I take away from the Buddha's life is that we need a practice to understand the way things are. We need a practice to open ourselves to wisdom. We need a practice to heal the suffering that's within us. You don't just wish for healing to happen. Um, healing and growth spiritually isn't like a lovely aspiration or just a nice thought. Like, oh, I'd love to grow. I'd love to be the starting quarterback at the Super Bowl. Well, I mean, that's a lovely aspiration, yeah. but you have to put in years of practice to, to make that happen, right? Right, right. So this idea that practice and wisdom are intrinsically related, um, for me, are, are the gifts that, that Buddhism and, and the Buddha has brought to my spiritual life. There are more, but I think that's the essence of it. Mm. On the Christian side of things, um, what comes to mind is this enduring gift from Jesus of love. Mm. That is, there is no growth on the spiritual path without love. And that the, you know, the Christian version of enlightenment is love, yeah. right? So in the Buddhist tradition, um, again, to oversimplify, but I think there's a kernel of this is true. The Buddhist aspiration is enlightenment or wisdom gained through practice. Mm. Uh, the Christian uh, end game is, is love, <laughs> uh, union with God and with others and with yeah. self, right? And so um, in, in my own life, these two, um, these two go hand in hand. I'm trying to live a life that integrates both the wisdom of practice on the one hand that the Buddha offered and, um, and the experience of love that God offers through Jesus, um, that love is, is actually something that lives within all of us so that we are, in the, in the Christian view of things, I believe, vessels of love. We are vessels of the divine. Um, Jesus says this over and over. This is so radical. It's amazing that this, this stuff actually got recorded <laughs> in scripture because it's, it's just so radical to think that what human beings are is a temple of spirit mm. um, that that God lives in us and we live in God. This is God. This is traditional Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, these two traditions are a little like breathing with both lungs. Uh, and I feel like my breath is fuller because of these, these two lungs that I breathe, breathe with the lung of love from the Christian tradition and the lung of, of wisdom through practice from the Buddhist tradition. Yeah. I'm reminded of what Ram Das used to say, loving awareness. That's kind of the combination there, loving awareness. Yeah, I love the, um, those two words together. It, uh, love adds a kind of warmth to awareness. In fact, um, I, I'm fond of saying that love and presence are the two wings that help the soul to soar. Mm. Um, right? There's a love from the Christian tradition, presence or awareness from, from the Buddhist tradition, also in the, the Hindu tradition, the yogic tradition, and Ram Dass, you know, has, has just been this radiant heart, right? Who's kind of led the way on this. 
Yeah, he's a master communicator, or was. Yeah. You know, the, the thing that really stands out to me when I was on my journey and I was really diving into Gautama, the Buddha's teachings, all the sutras and everything, and I was just fascinated that this is 40 years worth. This is a 40-year career, assuming the reports are correct. A 40-year career. This is a lot of wisdom. This is a lot of understanding coming through on these sutras and these stories. Whereas Jesus was profound, but it was a three-year ministry. It was a, it was a three-year teaching, so to speak. Is it safe to say that Buddha it was the biggest contributor to humankind or is that just a sensationalized statement like a lot of people would say you know einstein did this and tesla did this and you know mark twain gave this to humanity buddha essentially diagnosed suffering provided a template to get out of it and did it and then kept telling us for 40 years yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. Both of them had a kind of um, enlightenment moment about halfway through their lives. So both, uh, so uh, Buddha, right around the year twenty nine or thirty, um, according to you know some records, and uh, and Jesus as, as well. And this is interesting. Um, you know, uh, Richard Rohr and some other spiritual writers have written so powerfully about this important shift that needs to happen spiritually in our lives right around middle age, that the spiritual tasks of the first half of life look very different than the, the second half of life. Most of us need um, sort of a middle-aged moment. Um, and you can imagine thousands of years ago to be 30 was to be old, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? That there are certain, um, certain insights that we arrive at once we've suffered a little bit once we've seen life, once we've confronted our own death, the inevitability of suffering. Um, I am I'm one who um, was really uncomfortable um, sort of um, creating a hierarchy of spiritual leaders. Like there's the, you know, this person's the greatest of all time. Um, because the way I'd prefer to look at it is that each spiritual leader, prophet, um, brings their own particular unique brilliance, you, their unique wisdom. And no one particular prophet or leader or teacher ever completely exhausts that wisdom. Mm -hmm. So I actually think that we need a kind of wisdom democracy um, throughout space and time. We need a host of voices and that together, um, we can know as much as we can know, but I don't believe that any one voice could ever be the greatest because Buddha you know, said some powerful, beautiful things, diagnosed human suffering, as you said, um, you know, but, but he, didn't, he didn't say everything that there was to say, for example, mm -hmm. about love. He didn't say everything there was to say about social justice. He didn't say everything there was to say about the oppressive nature of the caste system, mm -hmm. um, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I'd rather be a student of all of these masters because, um, you know, as a dad, it's kind of like asking me which of my children I love the best. You know, I love them all equally. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. How do you think the world, or let's just start with America, how do you think America would change if they adopted this living Buddha, living Christ type of mentality, taking both taking from both because typically Christians are pretty much my way or the highway. Uh, not all, but many. <laughs> and it's, you know, son of God and that's it. It's prayer, it's belief, it's hope. Whereas Buddhism is very practical, very, we don't need belief. We just experience, you know, if you combine the two, such as you have, 
you know, something very beautiful can blossom. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think, um, you know, perhaps a hundred years ago, it, it, you know, we could easily say um, all Christians are dogmatic and all Christians, um, you know, believe, um, you know, nearly the same thing. And of course, it was, you know, the Christian traditions has always been heterogeneous. But, um, you know, at this moment, it's much more difficult to say uh, the Christian tradition says and then conclude the sentence because there's such a variety. Yeah. Um, and we have um, very traditional Christians uh, who indeed would believe uh, just like you're describing. And then we have a whole new flourishing in the last hundred years of Christians who believe uh, along a whole spectrum of belief. And, and most of the Christians um, that I'm in relationship with are deeply curious about the wisdom in other religious traditions and are, mm. uh, are, are devoutly open-hearted as actually an article of faith, right? that they believe that um, it's actually faithfulness to God to be open and listen to other traditions. So this is a beautiful kind of new flourishing within, uh, within the Christian tradition. I certainly see it um, at Yale Divinity School where, where I teach uh, preaching. Um, at the, and I think a part of the, a part of the reason that, that you might have this understanding of Christians is because the loudest, <laughs> the most vocal and well-funded have tended to be those Christians on the religious right, mm. right? Who very much have some, um, some conservative views that would look at the kind of um, interreligious dialogue that's nourished my heart as heresy, as problematic, right? Mm. You know, I would also say that... Um, you know, there are various Buddhist sects, some which very much uh, emphasize the simplicity of practice, but others like um, Pure Land Buddhism, like the various strains of Tibetan Buddhism, have a highly ornate system of beliefs, rituals, and practices um, that are not so easily practiced by, by us as uh, Americans. And um, I'm, I'm always a little bit weary of um, appropriating and just kind of stealing things from various traditions and slapping them together, right, without really fully honoring the traditions. So uh, all of that to say, um, I think if we can honor uh, various dimensions of contemplative practice from Buddhist tradition and really thoughtfully um, integrate them in our lives, always honoring the ancestry, always um, celebrating the voices that gave rise to these traditions and really trying to understand the context in which these uh, traditions were born. What do I think could happen in America? Oh my gosh, untold healing. And I think, um, I think the biggest way this would show up is that we wouldn't demonize one another. We would be able to really honor the infinite worth in one another and see people as people, not as problems, not as barriers, not as enemies. If, if you really valued the infinite worth of all beings, which is a fundamental tenet of nearly every religious tradition, it would be impossible to shoot a gun at them. It would be impossible to tear them down, belittle them, pathologize them, um, and so I think this is the biggest opportunity that we have in terms of integrating mindfulness practice across across America is that we could become a family mm. once again. And then, gosh, you know, the, the, the power of, a, of love between us um, could make lots of other incredible things possible that we sorely need, like, uh, right, like dismantling systems of oppression and ending racism and working on poverty and health disparities and the rest of it. But if we don't see each other as human beings, we're never going to do any of that other work. And that's what mindfulness has helped me to do. Yeah. Mindfulness is an interesting phenomenon right now because it's becoming popular. It's an old, ancient, you know, practice, but it's entering mainstream. I've, I hear doctors talking about it. You know, it, it's, it's everywhere. And this is a good thing because people can accept it. They can digest it and still keep their religion or whatever their beliefs are. It, it, but, you know, Gautama the Buddha did teach this 2,500 years ago. So it's almost like a hidden assassin of awareness <laughs> that's being pushed out to the mainstream. And 
uh, I, I witnessed this, you know, I'm a holistic health doctor. So I witnessed this with detox. Detox also an ancient practice of healing and cleaning the body became mainstream about 10 years ago. Yeah, uh, you got the three. You got the three-day cleanse, the ten-day cleanse, the twenty-one-day cleanse, <laughs> and so it became like this mainstream thing. And I see mindfulness following detox, right behind detox now, and that's about to be the new phenomenon for the next ten years. I think. Yeah, I think that this practice is so simple. It's so powerful, and. Um... You know, in some ways, uh, you know, whenever I'm teaching introduction to mindfulness at Copper Beach Institute, I say mindfulness doesn't add a single thing to your life that you don't already have. I mean, we come into this world um, as children, knowing how to play, knowing how to be in the moment, and then, and then we go to school, and then we train ourselves out of awareness, actually. We train ourselves into multitasking, distraction, obsession with the past and future, right? And so this practice of mindfulness is a human practice. Um, you know, the Buddha, uh, he, he shined the spotlight on this human practice. Um, but of course, mindfulness isn't a Buddhist practice. It's a human practice, which is why um, it has such capacity. Because as you name, you can be Jewish, a faithful Jew and practice mindfulness. You can be Muslim and Christian. You can be an atheist and practice mindfulness. It doesn't presuppose any set of beliefs. Um, and so this is what's been so powerful for us at Copper Beach Institute. We've created a kind of contemplative crossroads where people from every different tradition, uh, we have Jews and Christians and uh, Buddhists and, and, and uh, very committed atheists and people who are spiritual but not religious. We've created a brave space where we can all be connected to each other, where we can all practice mindfulness together, and we can all experience the kind of connection and healing and growth and insight that comes with practice. Mm. Um, so, um, so, so yes, I mean, I've been, um, I've been applauding the many ways in which mindfulness is spreading across the country. And inevitably, it cuts both ways when you have something that's so popular. Um, you know, there's an inevitable uh, misunderstanding. There's an, an inevitable exaggeration of its cl uh, these claims that mindfulness can do just about everything. Um, and um, I think there, there is a lot of misunderstanding out there around mindfulness, too. So, um, you know, we feel really blessed and honored that we're in a position we share how we understand mindfulness uh, in the service of healing, inner healing, but also in the service of healing our community, in the service of dismantling racism, in the service of um, social justice. Um, we don't practice mindfulness to, uh, you know, to, to get the perfect beach body or, or to, you know, attract the perfect job or to make a million dollars. I mean, none, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, of course. The kind of inner work, the kind of outer peacemaking that we feel like is so essential in our world, um, we feel like is, is very possible through the practice of mindfulness. And so I just feel so honored to be a part of a community of hearts and souls courageous enough to do this, yeah. this kind of work. Yeah, Copper Beach sounds great. I got to uh, go get a cup of tea there. We'd love that. Yeah. So let's go back. You, you, you said that your journey kind of started 25 years ago. Let's go back. What's, what's your pil pilgrimage? Oh, gosh, thank you for asking. God, yeah, it goes back even farther. When I was uh, a teenager, I felt a very clear calling to priesthood. Mm. I had this summer job um, working as the custodian in my, my small little uh, Catholic parish, immigrant Italian parish, and uh, in downtown Waterbury, where I grew up. And um, I went to college and studied medieval studies. I was very interested in medieval uh, mysticism. Mm. So my heroes became uh, Francis of Assisi and Meister Eckhart, Julian mm. of Norwich. Um, folks who had a very profound encounter with the divine. Um, which is, uh, which is how I understand the word mystic or mysticism, uh, 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 an encounter with the, yeah. with the sacred. 
Um, and so when I graduated um, college, I went on to enter seminary and had a really powerful experience. There were uh, nine of us studying to be priests, Catholic priests, and uh, this really kind of set down the path for me of the, this kind of rhythm of prayer and study uh, and service. Um, the three pieces of my life that are still really, really important to me, prayer and meditation, study, and being of service in the world. And, um, and I left after about six months. I, um, I felt really called to following in my uh, sort of spiritual godfather, Francis of Assisi. And so I wanted to explore being a Franciscan priest because he was passionately devoted to uh, caring for the poorest in his midst. And um, so it was a bit of a romantic and, you know, a, a poet and uh, loved animals, right? I mean, Francis fa famous for uh, his, his love of animals. And so um, I entered that seminary. Uh, actually, I did the paperwork to enter the seminary, but, but didn't actually go through with it. I met my wife uh, just, uh, just a few months before. And I realized that I was really being called to a life of partnership and marriage and family and being a father and a husband, uh, though the, the kind of impulse to be of service never went away. And so I, um, I enrolled in Yale Divinity School and studied with all these incredible um, uh, aspiring Protestant ministers mm -hmm. and learned about Protestant theology and this whole, these whole world's of theological creativity and spiritual creativity were, were opening up to me. And so I spent three years um, studying and, and serving. Uh, I worked as a chaplain. I worked as a high school teacher. And then eventually upon graduation, uh, I got a position at one of the largest Catholic retreat centers in the world in West Hartford, Connecticut called Holy Family Retreat Center, where I led retreats for 18 years. And I taught mindfulness and meditation uh, and um, and became a kind of spiritual teacher, something I never imagined myself being exactly. Hmm. Um, and it, it happens. Was, <laughs> it happens, right? You sort of fall into these things. It happened to me uh, too. Yeah, it just happens. It just happens, and you know the 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 divine has other plans for you. And so while I was there, I started working on this doctoral dissertation on Buddhist dialogue, and really, um, as I mentioned before, found this therapist and mindfulness teacher, and. Um, and uh, yeah, and then felt really inspired to share these practices. I, I had this experience of feeling so isolated and lonely in my practice. Uh, and so I had this idea that maybe some other folks would want to join together in community and share these practices and study and serve together. So uh, gosh, about seven or eight years ago, we had this idea of forming a spiritual community that was spiritually independent, that was a contemplative crossroads, that was rooted in um, deep listening and creating brave spaces for us to grow and learn together, rooted in mindfulness. And so we created Copper Beach Institute with this image of the Copper Beach tree, which is this ancient symbol of wisdom, yeah. solitude, and, and decision. Uh, that was in 2013. And gosh, almost eight years later, over 40,000 folks from over 30 countries have been a part of our work. So I, I just feel so humbled and, and blessed to have been uh, on this journey. Well, you, you made it a nonprofit organization. I have a nonprofit organization, so I can speak from experience that that's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's different than, you know, the traditional for-profit style of business. Yeah, it was, um, it was important to me that, we really signaled to the community that we were serious about putting our mission first. And most wellness centers are not nonprofit. Let me put that out there. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that, right? And that's not to cast any judgment about, uh, you know, around our for-profit friends. That's a beautiful way of, of making your way through the world. It, for us, it became really important because we wanted our mission to be out in front. And we weren't, uh, we weren't convinced that we could turn a profit. Um, you know, we, we've been out, um, you know, working in the Hartford jail every week for seven years and working with uh, folks struggling with chronic mental health issues and homelessness at Chrysalis and downtown Hartford, trauma survivors, veterans. Um, we didn't feel comfortable making money off of that work. Um, and the beauty is that our, um, 
our donors and foundations have really responded. And so, um, you know, we do charge for uh, many of our programs, but folks can um, apply for a scholarship. Financial barriers are never an issue, right? So we clear every single financial barrier. We give nearly $100,000 in financial scholarships a year. Mm -hmm. uh, we do, oh, about $75,000 of free pro bono mindfulness teaching in the community each year. So, um, you know, we are a, a community of service on a mission. And, um, you know, the nonprofit, uh, you know, designation was just the right fit for us. And um, I've just been so energized by the way in which people have, have joined the community and have just sacri sacrificially given of their own treasure to make sure that these healing modalities could be accessible to anyone and everyone who has a heart for, um, you know, for this work. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I, yeah, I saw, I saw a picture of you. I don't know. I don't remember where, but I saw Thich Nhat Hanh in the back in a photo. And I was like, ah, he's a Thich Nhat Hanh guy. Okay. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. If I were in my office, you would see the, the picture of Thich Nhat Hanh that's always over my shoulder. Yeah. Reminding me to keep things as simple as possible, right? Yes. Right? Just this breath. Yeah. Just, just this step. That's right. And he, uh, you know, he's at the end of his, his journey. He's uh, about, what, 88, 89, not, not talking or teaching anymore. And so, yeah. yeah it's this beautiful reminder um, that we have infinite worth, infinite value, even when we're not being productive. Right. It's this uh, sort of exaggerated capitalistic lens that we look through as Americans in which we tend to value people as transactions. Right. Like, what can you do for me? What door can you unlock? What service can you provide? Right. I love you if you can do something for me. Um, and so, the you know, the elders in our midst um, who are at this stage of dementia or paralysis or nonverbal, immobile, they remind us that there's an, an, an incredible beauty and dignity just, just in being alive, right? I, I often say to, to students who've come to, uh, to learn with me, and you know, I, I don't really even consider myself a teacher. I, I even call myself a facilitator when push comes to shove. I'm a fellow student. I, I say, if you did nothing more than draw breath today, you would still have infinite worth and you would still be infinitely lovable. <laughs> right? So, so much of this false, this false self that we create and construct defines our worth and our value in terms of performance and accomplishment. And if, if the spiritual life teaches us anything, it's just that we are what happens when love gets a body. <laughs> and and the, our own infinite worth has nothing to do with our performance or our accomplishment. Like our very being radiates. Uh, love and um, and so at the end of his life, uh, he's even teaching us uh, by his by his just being right. It's it's very beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Some photos have been released of him, like you know, eating, and he's just very, you know, even though he's physically, I don't want to use the word suffer, but he's physically declining pretty rapidly. He's still present and he's still just carrying out the practice of beingness. And you're right. It's you know, anytime you get to witness a master uh, in any tradition go through this, it's a role model type of experience. Because mm. we're all going to be there. Oh gosh, we're all going to be there, right? And of course the beauty is that the sooner we wake up <laughs> to, uh, the sooner we wake up to our own aging and we wake up to our own suffering, our own pain, the way in which this is all passing away, this is impermanent, but the sooner we'll find our own joy, right? It's the mystery. That's the mystery. It's the paradox. Yeah. What a fun paradox. Mm. How do you work on your inner critic? 
Oh, you know, um, I've come to understand that the best way to work on the inner critic is by not trying to work on the inner critic. Mm. <laughs> by which I mean, um, in my early days, really before I had um, some important therapy, before I had a, a real consistent mindfulness practice, I would notice myself going to war with the inner critic, trying to convince it that it's wrong, trying to make a case that I'm worthy, uh, that I'm not a terrible person, that I'm you know smart enough. Um, and so really, uh, you know, there's that, that famous Einstein line that we all repeat, you know, the no problem can be solved at the same energy level that created that problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for years, I tried to solve the problem of my inner critic on the same energy level. So it would yell at me, and I would yell back at it. It would provide 10 reasons why I was terrible and not enough. And then I would provide 10 reasons why I was wonderful and actually good enough. Right? So um, I've just come to understand that you, that there's no arguing with the inner critic. There's no working on it. You cannot meet its energy level with the same energy and expect it to change. You have to go to a different frequency, a different energy level, a different modality. And what I have found is the, um, the most potent medicine for the inner critic is self-compassion. Mm. Um, and, and so um, whether this be uh, loving kindness practice, the wonderful Theravadan Buddhist practice of metta meditation, loving kindness that, you know, folks like Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein um, and others in the insight meditation community teach. Um, this has been a really important practice or the, the really powerful teachings um, articulated just a few years back by Kristen Neff and Chris Germer in their, in their book, Mindful Self-Compassion, has been really, really important to me. And so this just means uh, lavishing yourself with compassion in those moments when the inner critic is really roaring. Mm. Um, and what I've come to understand, and this is just my own understanding, is that my own inner critic that you know, will tell me from time to time that I'm not smart enough or good enough or articulate enough, or I don't have enough education, um, I should be collecting five more master's degrees, um, <laughs> is that uh, that voice may, may be there for a while. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll die with that voice of the inner critic in the background. And I've made peace with that. But what I've decided, though, is that the inner critic can come along for the ride, but it's no longer allowed to be in the driver's seat. So the inner critic can't make important decisions. The inner critic uh, doesn't get to tell me my worth and define my value um, and tell me what I can and can't do, right? So that voice can come along for the ride. And anytime I hear it, I'm just going to shower it and myself with compassion. Right. Um, and so in that way, I've, I've realized that that voice actually has no more power. It's still yeah. speaking, but the yeah. voice has no more power over me. Right. That's important. I like to tell people, you know, make your thoughts your employee and not your boss. Yeah, beautiful. This this inner thinking, you, you can't let it take control or you're in trouble. Yeah, that's my experience anyway, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my first teacher said to me, um, one of my first teachers, this is a wonderful uh, Trappist monk. Uh, he used to say, we just uh, remember, you don't have to believe everything you think, right? Um, and of course, this is kind of a mantra in the meditation community, right? So many people say this. But I mean, I can remember the first time I heard those words and it, my mind was blown. Uh, I, thought, I thought everything I thought was real. I thought I needed to believe everything. I thought that voice was just saying the truth all the time yeah, <laughs> so yeah. how, how freeing to realize that right yeah it is that's the first step is that little realization yeah that's the first step up the rung. that's the first rung of the ladder it's a tall ladder that's the first one is to not not be attached to to these little formless talking things that happen or visualizations right because we can have visuals and we can have language that's right that's right uh, you know there 
it's just what the mind does, right? And so it's all, it's also important to know that you don't we don't need to demonize that aspect of ourselves that produces thoughts and judgments and images. Um, right? So that's the other extreme, and that was that was the first place I went to. So as soon as my my teacher said, "Don't believe everything you think," what I heard is thoughts are bad. <laughs> thoughts are my enemy. Yeah. And so that 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 resulted in me trying to arm wrestle my mind into a blank mind. I tried to empty the mind. And so for about a year, I thought that meditation was emptying the mind. And then I had to, you know, sit with another teacher who reminded me and Sharon Salzberg is teaching is wonderful on this. Meditation is not emptying the mind. It's not creating a blank slate, right? Um, depending on what form of meditation you're doing. Um, it's just returning, Returning to the breath, if you're you know working with focused uh, a focused meditation on on, on breath, uh, if you're doing if you're practicing with open awareness, it's just returning to awareness, right? It's just watching the mind. We don't have to quiet the mind, shut off the mind. This is so important. So many people leave the practice of meditation because they conclude I'm not good at it, because their definition of good is turning off the brain. Yeah. and I say like. That's not the game we're playing here. <laughs> right. Although it can happen. <laughs> Although it can happen from time to time. Beautiful when it does. That's up. That's up or on the ladder. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe. Or maybe up or on the ladder is just noticing whatever arises and not being attached to either quiet mind or busy mind. Going back to uh, Gautama, you know, he taught Vipassana which is essentially witnessing, right? Right. Just watching. Watching. Like a projector. You just watch the movie and make note of it with no judgment. Thank you for that word. Witnessing is one of my favorite words to use. This is all this is. This is the willingness to witness. Yeah. And back to where we started. In some ways, nothing special. And totally extraordinary at the same time. Right? <laughs> That's the paradox. <laughs> it, it really is so simple, yet very hard to teach or explain to other people sometimes mm -hmm. because we've been so programmed. I mean, we got in the kindergarten and it was off we go. <laughs> right, to take all the kind of natural wisdom that children have and, and train them out of it. Yeah. <laughs> One of my That's why I always like to start out, uh, you know, whenever we're arriving on Zoom or even when, you know, when we're in, in person, I always like to hear about people's favorite uh, toy from childhood. Um, because uh, a smile often comes to people's faces um, and they often remember long hours spent simply playing. And I believe that mindfulness practice and meditation practice is much, much closer to this energy. Yeah. play than it is to work you know we tend to make to make uh, meditation into work and we toil and it's serious and we labor right uh, you can be sure if you're working that hard uh you're doing something wrong yeah yeah one of my favorite lines is from star wars star wars comes up a lot on this podcast for some reason <laughs> but uh your thoughts betray you yeah, they, they come can Yes, that comes really up a lot. Can. Yeah, your thoughts betray you. Be mindful, young Jedi. Your thoughts betray you. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you think something doesn't mean it's true. Yeah, amen to that. <laughs> How do you face fear fearlessly? Oh, gosh. You know, um, for me, the learning around this practice, again, comes back to self-compassion and really making, um, granting myself permission to feel whatever it is we're feeling. This is something that, um, uh, that MBSR, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction uh, class, and that beautiful tradition of MBSR did for me. This is John Kabat-Zinn, of course, the wonderful sort of godfather of the uh, American evidence-based, scientific, grounded mindfulness tradition gave to me. This permission um, to, to witness whatever is washing ashore 
um, on the beach of my awareness, whether this is fear or dread or panic or anxiety. Like what I've come to notice is I've developed my sort of emotional um, intelligence is that fear actually has quite a wide spectrum, right? To dread something is one form of fear that's a little bit different than um, well, to be concerned or to be anxious or to be stressed about something or to be panicked, uh, right? Those are all different gradients of fear. And so um, my mindfulness practice has given me permission to become really curious mm. about all that spectrum of fear. And so while, I mean, I'm the first to admit fear is, is uh, not pleasurable, it's uncomfortable, uh, my practice has given me the, the ability to sit with my own fear, to witness it, to feel uh, my fear, to, and to have some compassion for myself. Um, you know, there's some debate in the, in the Buddhist community, like, you know, when you're enlightened, do you experience fear? You know, those are interesting conversations. But for me, they're practically useless. Because all I know is that in my journey from time to time as a human being, I experience fear. And the work is not to ignore it, to pretend it doesn't exist, or to shame myself and how the inner critic used to show up in my life and say, you should be more spiritual and therefore not experience fear, mm. which I just think is a load of crap, actually. So human beings from time to time feel fear. Some of this is just evolutionary. Some of this arises as a impulse to keep us safe. Well, some of it's, you know, uh, a bad habit that no longer serves us. So for me, my practice around fear is to grant myself permission to feel it fully, to give myself self-compassion. And then when I'm ready, and only when I'm ready, after I've moved through practice, making space for the feelings, witnessing self-compassion, then I take a step and I lean into the fear, hmm. uh, which might mean making a decision that's scary, a decision that's just unknown or mysterious, and I really step out in trust. That's been, that's been my practice. Hmm. Um, although sometimes, you know, for some people, the decision might actually be to actually take a step back, uh, to take a break, to take a retreat, to take refuge. Realize you don't have to actually act <laughs> mm -hmm. until you're ready. Uh, but usually I can cycle through uh, that process, um, sometimes in a matter of minutes, sometimes a matter of hours, other times days. And then, and then often I'm ready to take the step even if it's still scary and, and make, a, make a decision. And, and often in my life, I feel like uh, God or the divine spirit has often directed me toward the path of the thing that I'm afraid of. I mean, if you look in the, in the Christian and, and Jewish scriptures, almost everyone that's called by God to do something heroic or important is terrified, <laughs> tries to talk his or her way out of it. So I try not to let my fear imprison me and move through those uh cycle through those feelings make space for it and, and then i often feel like um the fear is the direction of the sacred calling yeah thank you for that question yeah and if your emotions can be witnessed just like we spoke of with thoughts and so you can definitely uh uh put put awareness on it and and see what's going on. Examine. Investigate. Right? Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, you know, um, I, I think of there being three primary aspects to our human experience. We have thoughts, we have emotions, and we have sensations. So when we're working in meditation, right, those three dimensions will inevitably come up, right? And we can witness all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, and, and we don't have to do anything about them. We, it's, it's healing just to notice. This is another mantra of mine, healing. Um, awareness itself is healing. Uh, so we don't often have to do a single thing except to pay attention. And, and that's, right. that's where the power is, right? There's power in paying attention. Yes, there is. Brandon, this has been a great call. I, I think we're going to have to do this again. Oh, I would look forward to it. Thank you. My heart is uh, filled with gratitude, Kevin. Thank you for all you do.
And where can somebody get a hold of you? Folks can find me at Copper Beach Institute, uh, copperbeachinstitute.org. And I love meeting people. I love hearing people's story and and uh, supporting them in their journey. So uh, I'd love folks to reach out and, and I'd love to learn how I can be supportive to uh, this community. How about on the gram? You on the gram? We're on Instagram. Absolutely. <laughs> um, my personal account's not very active, but our, uh, our Copper Beach account is really, really active. And I, I really use our Copper Beach uh, Facebook and Instagram account um, to do my teaching. And so um, every single day, I release um, a little bit of, of wisdom about life and about practice. And then every Sunday on Instagram and Facebook, uh, I share um, a weekly reflection. Um, so folks can um, engage with me there. Great. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.